Okay, good evening, everybody. Welcome to session six of the War in the Ring class, our most recent Mythgard Academy class. I guess it's always true that whatever class we're doing is our most recent Mythgard Academy class. Um, so welcome, everybody. So glad to be here. Sorry I'm a few minutes later than I normally am. Uh, I was uh, out this evening beating people up, and I'm late coming back. So um karate class tonight and I, I i i gave it to him tonight but i really did but um late so sorry about that <laughs> anyway um uh so we're uh going to do faramir tonight and i love watching this unfold it is so much fun it is, to me it is one of the most uh rewarding elements of reading the history of the lord of the Rings series uh to see these times when you can see the story begin you know like the the moments when, uh, you know, the, the story as Tolkien is discovering it step by step. And this moment when all of a sudden, boom, like Faramir uh, becomes Faramir, right? It's so neat. Uh, and I love seeing where that go, where that takes him uh, in what is clearly a very unexpected kind of... Um, uh, kind of direction. So, anyway, I'm uh, I'm excited to uh, uh, to do that. Oh, and uh, uh, Vince Weichiru Karate. It's an Okinawan style. It's much like, though not identical to Mr. Miyagi's uh, karate style. Um, but uh, almost my black belt graduation. Actually, I'm getting my black belt uh, in a few weeks. Um, in what is going to be a very big week. Uh, that is the second uh, first full week of May. Um. Which reminds me, tomorrow. speaking of the first full week of May, tomorrow night I'm going to be doing a special session. Um, we're gonna, I'm going to be doing sort of a, well, to, say, to call it emergency um, makes, it, uh, makes it sound like, uh, you know, it's something bad. It's not something bad. Uh, it's a special, uh, unexpected, <laughs> you catastrophic even, uh, State of the University address that I'm going to be doing. Uh, I've got some big updates about Signum University because some super exciting things have been going on uh, here behind the scenes. Um, so I wanted to share that with you uh, and uh, let you guys know what's happening. So that's going to be tomorrow night, Thursday night, uh, what is it? Uh, 6th, April 6th. Thursday night, April 6th at 9.30pm. Um, and I have the uh, I have a, a, a link here. Let me post that link in, in both places so that th those of you who are here with us live uh, can have that. I'm posting that to the chat in GoToWebinar there and I'm going to post it here uh, in the Twitch chat as well so that you guys can have that there. So that's the registration link for our special session tomorrow night, 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, I, I know that many of you have been following with interest the, uh, the, the, the career of Signum University, which has been a, a pretty remarkable career to this point. Uh, and uh, uh, we're coming up on a, on a super important moment in that career. So I wanted to share that with you guys, and I'm really excited. Um, so, uh, Craig, yes, no, it wasn't just you. I did have to cancel class last week, and my only excuse is that it's directly connected with the exciting <laughs> announcements I have. Uh, uh, I had to cancel because I spent the entire day, the day that I usually spend preparing for class uh, in... Uh, um, uh, in up in Concord, New Hampshire, in the state capital, talking to the Department of Education. So, um, and uh, 
and actually it was really cool because you know I came home from from Concord and I'm like okay let me see if I can try to get stuff ready for class and then I went to prepare for class and that's when I noticed that of course as you may have noticed as you were preparing for class last night like last week I had only one chapter scheduled and it's it's like six pages long it's like a teeny tiny chapter well of course I when I originally made up the schedule I said to myself I thought pretty plausibly, right? Well, surely I'm going to be way behind by the time we get to week five, right? So, uh, you know, so I was like, I'm like, should I do that chapter plus Faramir on the same night? And I'm like, no, that's I'm going to be so far behind. I'll just do the herbs and stewed rabbit chapter to give me a chance to catch up, right? And then we'll be caught up when we get to the Faramir chapter. But of course, unbelievably, we were caught up, right? So, uh, so you know, I'm like trying to, to, to cram and seeing if I can, if I can uh, make class happen uh, last week anyway. And, um, uh, and so then I look at this and I'm like, a six page chapter? I'm like, that's, bar- that's, that's, that's like barely even enough for a class. And, and so I, I totally pulled an Aragorn. You know, I'm like, I, I shall take this short chapter as a sign <laughs> and cancel class tonight. Uh, so I think it was, uh, um, that was uh, 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 that was that was fine. So I, I, I apologize for that, uh, but we're back uh, this week. One last thing I wanted to uh, to mention quickly, uh, just sort of on a uh, on a on a personal note, and something I wanted to to share with you guys. Um, I just, I'm looking at my attendee list here. Uh, Oh, she is here. Takako, you're here. I wanted to thank you. So Takako, who is here with us today, sent me a wonderful present, which arrived in the mail today, Takako. She sent me a copy of the Japanese translation of my book. You might have seen me post this on Twitter, but if you haven't seen it, it is worth looking at. This cover of my Exploring uh, the Hobbit book is so beautiful. I just can't get over how beautiful this cover is. Uh, it is like far and away. It's not only the like by, by far the best cover my book had in any publication or translation of it, uh, but it's one of this is one of the coolest Tolkien covers I've seen. Period. Uh, this is just awesome. Uh, so thank you so much. The, I, I, the the Japanese publisher never got around to sending me a copy of this, uh, and it is it is it is just beautiful. Uh, maybe maybe someday I will I will I, I will learn to read it there. Uh. Uh, Takako, that, that's uh, uh, it's pretty. So thank you very much for this. I'm uh, I am I am so excited to have my own copy of that. It is really beautiful. Um, anyway, okay. So um, thanks everybody for uh, for joining us. Let us get down to business now. Okay, I'm now I'm ready. Here we go. The ambush in Athelion. So we begin with, you know, it's interesting to me to learn, as Christopher says, that uh, the passage at the beginning, this, this was a, a place he had a really hard time moving on from. Right? He described, Tolkien described the process of writing the beginning uh, of the Athelian section, like that that was, you know, kind of labored, that he really was sort of having a hard time with that. And, and uh, you know, we saw him kind of laboring over the geography, right, that they... Um, uh, um, he spent so much time, as we looked at in the last session, deciding like where exactly is Minas Morgul and which one are the are the is the relevant towers and is it up or is it down and how far down are they going and we oh we got the crossroads but you know is that across from Osgiliath or how does that work? Um, that when it came to actually describing them, you'll remember uh, Christopher mentions this this one note where um, he. Uh, um, 
he decided, like, no, wait, I, I've got to go back and make that more deep. He was just kind of shoving them along the road. like. And so then they went south for a while. And anyway, then they get to the crossroads. And he's like, no, more needs to happen, right? This, we need to spend some time in this experience uh, of Ithilien. Um So, uh, um, okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, all right. So let's, let's uh, read some of his uh, first drafting here. And this, by the way, I think is... Well, as outlines go, as sort of brainstorming goes, this is a very Tolkien piece of brainstorming, right? After so much labor and peril, the days they spent on it seemed almost a rest. In Gollum's... That is on the road, I assume. In Gollum's reckoning, it was, it was some twenty, changed from some other figures, leagues, from the Moran into the outer wards of Minas Morgul, maybe more. Notice how his uncertainty about the geography is, is affecting him here. Um, and I would just add briefly, again, that's kind of, it's interesting because that's a bit of a departure, right? We've noticed many times before that uh, Tolkien tends to do story first, right? And then he sort of fills in and sorts out the geography uh, afterwards. Uh, and in a sense, of course, that's what's happening here. I guess you could sort of see it in, in a few different stages, right? First, he, he has the general outline. Like, he knows Gollum's going to take him to Kirithungol. Kirithungol is going to be next to Minas Morgul, so they're going to go near Minas Morgul, but they're no longer going to go into it. Um, probably there's this... The, the Tower of Kirithungol now probably exists in Tolkien's plan, um, and they're going to go through the crossroads first. So he knows the outline of what they're going to do, basically. Right? And then, then of course, we saw him sorting out the geography. Now he's got to bring the two of them together, right? To sort of marry the story and the geography. And that's, that marriage seems to be uh, uh, sort of off to a slightly rocky start here. Anyway, okay. Gollum finds food. Night of full moon, they see a white something far away up in the dark shadow of the hills to the left, at the head of a wide re-entrant valley, uh, Minas Morgul. Next night they come to the crossroads, and a great stone figure, something back to Elostirion, which is uh, Osgiliath. Remember, he was going back and forth between Elostirion and Osgiliath for the name of that city. Struck out Sarn Ubed, and in Aran, Tower Toralt, struck out Sarn Torath, Anon Torath, Aranath, reminding Frodo of the kings at Sarn Aranath, or Sarn Ubed. But his head was struck off, and in mockery some orcs had set something, a clay ball, something, the red eye was something painted over. Um, and, uh, <laughs> yes, Arthur, I do assume that it's the statue whose head is struck off and not Frodo's, though I agree it's slightly, it's slightly hard to tell. Uh, but technically the nearest antecedent to, to his head there is, in fact, Frodo. But, um, uh, anyway... Uh, I, of course, I, I assume you see what, what I find so delightfully Tolkienian about this. Uh, of course, we see the shape of it, which is so familiar to us, right? Where, um, you know, his outlines seem to go in one of two ways, right? Either he starts off in prose and then he begins to get some ideas and he, and he, he, he dissolves into, into, into outline and, and just, just, just notes, right? Uh, which is what happens here. Or, very commonly, he'll start off doing notes and then he transitions into prose and starts doing full dialogue, right? We see both of those things happening a lot. Um, but the way that this just dissolves into this series of names, right? And you can see, you can almost hear him um, beginning to 
beginning to to sort of feel out almost almost sort of sound out or, or like taste these different names, right? Um, Sarnel Ubed, Enin Aram, Tower Toralt, Sarn Torath, Anan Torath, Aranath, Sarn Aranath, Sarn Ubed, right? Uh, it's like all these different versions, so similar, right? And yet sort of turning around and I halfway through, I am lost as to like which names are supposed to be applied to what things. I don't even, I'm not even sure what we're talking about um, by the time we get to Aranath there at the end, right? Um, but, um, yeah, Josiah calls it an all-you-can-pronounce elvish buffet. Uh, yeah, it really is, uh, uh, it really is like that. Um, yeah, so, um, uh, it's but but I think again this is this is a neat little glimpse at how how important I think um, you know the names are to him and the kind of role uh, that the names seem to play um, how he sort of is interrupting his flow uh, not just in randomly like I want to kind of think about names here but it seems to be an important way of understanding right uh, what's um, what's going on here. Um, okay, so then we get the idea of the about the rabbits, right? With all this in his mind, he turned to look for Gollum. Gollum was crawling away through the bracken. Hi, said Sam. Where are you going? Hunting? Now look here, my friend. You don't like our food, but if you could find something fit for a hobbit to eat, I'd be grateful. Yes, yes. Gollum brings back two rabbits. Angry at fire, A. Fear, B. Rage at nice juicy rabbits being spoiled. Pacified by Frodo, promise of fish. Night of full moon and vision of Anduin. Third night, they do not reach the crossways. Trying to hasten their journey by day through wood, they come to crossways and peer at it out of thicket. The headless king with a mocking head made by orcs and scrawls on it. That night they turn left. Vision of Minas Morgul in the moon, high up in re-entrant. Okay, um, so... Notice that, um, uh, notice that, notice the sequence of things, right? That is the sequence of the things that Tolkien discovers. The first thing he discovers about Athelion, and I don't count Minas Morgul, right? Because that was part of the, you know, whole geographic scheme, uh, that he worked so hard on in the previous, well, what was earlier in the same chapter, right? When he wrote it, but previous chapter for us, um, but in Athelion, what's the very first thing that comes up in Athelion? The very first thing that comes up in, in Athelion is the crossroads with the king. And the the whole vision of the king, or almost the whole vision of the king, is there from the beginning, right? The, the ancient stone statue with its head lopped off and the uh, the, uh, the orc mockery uh, and, you know, the whole thing covered with orc graffiti. That's there. Um, that's like the, the first thing that he thinks of uh, in Athelion. It's the first thing that he discovers in Athelion. And that... I find really interesting, you know, to think of the primacy of that uh, seems to me very suggestive. Um, And here's one of the primary reasons why I find that so suggestive is that let's not forget that Aragorn becoming king has not been the central story all the way through or anything like, right? It's a fairly newish concept that Aragorn is going to become king at the end. Um, even when he was going through the ending of the story before, it didn't necessarily include Aragorn becoming king. Um, we are... Um, uh, we're definitely 
moving more strongly in that direction, right? As they come down here in Athelion and they're about to cross over into Minas Morgul and further into Mordor, before they leave, before they turn their backs on Gondor, um, they see this other ancient Gondorian statue, and you can see the connection that he's making between this and the Argonoth, right? Or what will eventually be called the Argonoth, however many things it's being called right now. Um, and uh, uh, so we have this this ancient, this symbol, um, representative, really, more than just a symbol, um, of the ancient might and splendor of Gondor and power of Gondor, but it's decapitated, right? The king has no head. It's it's a ruler without a head. The, the head of the king uh, has to be restored. And so this this already, whether or not he was consciously working it in this direction at this point, whether this was what was in his head, we don't know. Um, but we can already see how that's beginning to work as as a symbol, as a metaphor for Aragorn. Like the the ancient statue with no head, right, is like the kingdom of Gondor, right, with no king, the kingdom of Gondor that kicked out its Numenorean uh, rulers long ago, um, it needs to be, uh, it needs to be restored, right? Um, uh, and now, we're, so we're beginning to see that becoming more centrally into view. So again, that's, that's object number one, right? That's the very first element of the Athelian story that comes into focus. The second, the rabbits too, Right. Uh, Sam cooking his rabbit stew. And I'm not sure. This, um, this outline, which is the first suggestion of that, is not really revealing um, uh, it's not really revealing about the function of this story um, in regard uh, to um, like that is the function of the rabbit story. Like, what is the purpose? What does it do? Like, why is it? Why is it that? What is the? What is the core idea? You know, um, I don't think it's simply. There's too much detail here. Um, you know, the number of rabbits that are being cooked, and and besides which, I can't think of a single other example a single other moment when we are told what they cooked and ate in their camp while they were traveling. Like, ever since they left Rivendell, I don't think we've been told even once what was the food, I mean, other than Limbus, obviously, like, what was the food uh, they were eating? So just the mere fact that we have this whole scene with the finding of, you know, the catching of the rabbits and the the making of the stew. Um, Notice what we don't have here, right? What he does not point to is and which is such a central feature of the story as it's finally represented in the published text is that moment of tenderness with Sam and Frodo right that the whole Sam is driven first to think of the rabbit stew for his concern for Frodo he looks too drawn and thin right um and he wants to cook him a nice stew because they they hasn't had a decent meal in a long time that's what motivates him to begin and we get of course that um you know that's the you know Frodo uh, or you know him contemplating Frodo and 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 openly considering how much he loves him and everything. You know, it's 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 a moment of very great tenderness um, from Sam to Frodo. Um, but we don't. He doesn't point to that at all. Now, I'm not saying that that can't possibly be um, that 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 can't possibly be uh, uh, you know in Tolkien's head here behind this outline. But he doesn't mention it. 
right? And normally, I don't know, I would have expected him, if that was the core thing he was going after, right? If that was the main thing that he um, uh, that he had in mind, I, I think he would have mentioned it in some way, right? Um, but he doesn't. And notice Frodo seems to be awakened there. The concept of Frodo sleeping seems to be not there, as Frodo is there to pacify Gollum when Gollum freaks out uh, about the fire. So as far as I can see, just based on what we get of it here, the central point of the you know, the central Coney concept, um, is, uh, um, the relationship with Gollum, right? I mean, that's the thing that really gets emphasized. Sam's approach to Gollum, Gollum's willingness, right? Yes, yes, gets its own little paragraph there, right? Um, and then Gollum's reaction to the fire and his pacification by Frodo. So the, the sort of the, the, the three-way dynamics between Sam, Gollum, and Frodo, seem to be the thing that at least I would say that's what this outline is most interested in, right? Whether or not that was primary in Tolkien's head, I don't know. Um, but that certainly seems to be something, uh, that he really had in mind, uh, centrally here. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Um, now the, um, yeah, the headless King. Oh yeah. Kate, uh, Kate Neville made a really great comment about the Headless King. Um, uh, Kate says that the image that is this image of the Headless King came before Aragorn was explicitly attached to it, right? Like the Gondorians appeared uh, before Faramir. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And of course, we often see that kind of thing. Um, yeah, James, I, I also like how Tolkien says he's got to research how to cook rabbit stew, right? So that he, know, he so that Sam can know how to do it. Um, but see, James, that's exactly it, right? Was there there was was there any other point where Tolkien had to do culinary research for their camp food? I don't think so, right? Uh, and the, the, again, clearly, he's making a bigger deal uh, of the cooking of the coney. Um, but the f- initial emphasis here is all on the fire and Gollum's reaction to the fire, which is interesting. Um, and uh, Stephen, that's a really great question about the vision at the end. Vision of Minas Morgul in the moon, high up in reentrant. Um, and Stephen is asking, is this, does it just mean that they see it? Uh, or, you know, like they have a vision, you know, that there's something sort of more portentous about that. I think kind of both, in a sense, Stephen. That is to say, um, I think that it's, they, they see it, is what it means. But I think that that is kind of significant phrasing. Vision of Minas Morgul in the moon, right? That's significant, right? It's the Tower of the Moon, right? But Minas Morgul in the moon. It's not Minas Ithil in the moon. So vision of Minas Morgul in the moon. There seems to me, the way that he describes that leads me to believe, or leads me to theorize anyway, uh, that that sentence, um, vision of Minas Morgul in the moon, high up in reentrant. That sounds like one of those landscape painter moments, right, where Tolkien is really visually picturing this particular scene that he's describing. I think he's got a very clear picture in his head of what that looks like. Minas Morgul in the moon, high up in the re-entrant. Um, and so I suspect that his thought there is that while it is just a catching a sight of it, his description of it is probably going to convey more than that, right? That they're gonna, it's going to be um, a meaningful sight of it, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, good. Um, let's, uh, let's keep going. 
At the end of the episode of Stewed Rabbit, there is a brief sketch in the manuscript of the story to come, written in pencil so rapid that I cannot make all of it out. But, it's, but, it, but it, it can seem that Sam finds that Gollum is not there, he puts out the fire, and runs down to wash the pants. He hears voices, and suddenly sees a couple of men chasing Gollum. Gollum eludes their grasp and vanishes into a tangled thicket. They go on up the hill, and Sam hears them laugh. Not an orc, says one. Sam creeps back to Frodo, who has also heard voices and hidden himself, and they see many men creeping up towards the road. And then skipping a little bit, this is uh, a direct quotation. A slain Tirith man falls over bank and crashes down on them. Frodo goes to him, and he cries, Orc! and tries to... something, but falls dead, crying, Gondor! The Herod men drive Gondorians down, hill. The hobbits creep away through thickets. At last they climb tree, see Gondorians fight and win finally. At dusk, Gollum climbs up to them. He curses Sam for bringing enemies. They dare not go back to road, but wander on through the wild glades of Athelion that night. See full moon. Meet no more folk. Strike the road to Osgiliath far down, and have to go back long detour east. Deep Ilex Woods. Gollum goes on by day. Evening of third day, they reach Crossways. See Broken Statue. Okay. Um, so, uh, yeah, good. Oh, good. Yeah, Bri- Brianna is pointing out that, of course, that, that there is a really, uh, a, a really nice painting in the two towers of, uh, uh, um, yeah, I, Brianna says uh, there's a nice uh, sort of painting in the Two Towers film of the moon over this region, so it's it's nice that it actually became a painting in the end. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, uh, yeah, Arthur, I also don't ever remember seeing the phrase Tirith Man before. That seems to be that seems to be new here. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and Lee, yeah, that's really fascinating, isn't it? Lee points out the the parallel between them climbing up a tree to escape this battle, uh, and of course Bilbo and the dwarves climbing up the tree uh, in out of the frying pan into the fire. Um, uh, though I, I guess no harm comes of it here, right? So uh, here it seems to be the good uh, way to go here. Um, uh, yeah. Okay, so... Um, but Kate, yeah, exactly. As Kate points out, we see it again, right? This image that uh, that is, you know, sort of central to this scene, but later on it's going to take on a different significance, and that is soldier falling down and dying right in front of them, right? That's a uh, that's a moment, um, and that seems to be the central moment here, right? So, okay, so we've had, uh, you know, image number, you know, Ithilien moment number one. The headless king, right? The st- the the statue at the crossroads. Uh, Ithilien moment number two: the cooking of the rabbit stew. Ithilien moment number three: the fight between uh, the Harad men and the Gondorians, right? The Tirith men. Um, and this is one of which they are they are merely the spectators. So it appears that this entire the entire point of this, as far as we can see, is like they're in danger, right? We see them coming close to battle, right? Coming close to, 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 to combat. Um, so like the war is threatening them, right? And like directly, like they threaten to be caught up in the war, um, but they're not personally connected to it at all. That is, they don't, um, 
they don't interact with it other than briefly with the dying dude, right? Um, but he crashes down on them, like, you know, very close to them, right? Right down there uh, among them. Um, I don't know what he was trying to cry. I'm not sure. Orc, whether that was, you know, he was saying something else and, and couldn't quite get it out. Uh, but, uh, or whether he's warning them or whether he thinks they're orcs, I'm not really sure exactly how to... Uh, uh, how to take that exactly. Um, and Yana, that's a great question. I was thinking the same thing just now. Um, Tirith man. Uh, Minas Tirith, of course, means the Tower of Guards. So does Tirith man mean that he's a guard? Like, he's, he's a guard man, or does it mean a man of Minas Tirith? Uh, I was assuming it means man of Minas Tirith, just as we have Harad men and Tirith men, right? I assume. Um, but it is kind of interesting, right? Like, Tirith man would be a, a perfectly fine uh, uh, way to just say, oh, he's... He's a guard, right? Uh, it's fine. Um, so, Mike, I, the Tirith man seems to think that Frodo's an orc. Um, when Because the dudes who are chasing Gollum conclude that he's not an orc. And apparently they think that's funny and leave, right? So we have Gollum being threatened by them, but Gollum escaping. The hobbits never being detected, except for briefly by the dying dude. Um and uh, who like cries out his battle cry as he dies, and then and then that's it. But he seems, I think, to um, uh, to um, to to mistake them for orcs. You know, I'm not really I'm not really sure. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Mike, orcs are smaller than men. I think. Um, Remember, the hobbits are getting mistaken for orcs relatively frequently, or at least lots of people rule out orcs when they see them, right? Um, you know, I mean, the you know the rangers are you know the rangers of Athelion are like no, not orcs, right? Um, and Treebeard also, right, uh, would have mistaken them for little orcs. So, so yeah, it, it's uh, orcs are not as. T- and remember, there are also references to the fact that some of the great Uruks are nearly man high, right? So that the goblins, um, you know, the other smaller uh, uh, orcs, are um, you know the, like the, the you know the 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 the, the Misty Mountain orcs are smaller, right? So, um, so yeah, presumably they are. Um, uh, maybe not quite hobbit size, but it is their first thought. They see strange, diminutive creatures in the bushes, and so, you know, poor mortally injured dude mistakes them for orcs. Like, I think he can be forgiven for that. Um, and yes, Stephen, it is one of the things that makes the Urukai special is that they're they're basically the size of men. Yeah, uh, which is unusual. Um, absolutely. Okay. Um, Right, okay, so this battle, then, is the next thing. And so I talked about the, you know, the, the war impinging on the... Again, no, it's, it's, it's impersonal, right? They don't interact... The first impulse here is not to have them interact with, with it at all, with any of the soldiers, with any of the, uh, with any of the battle. Um, and it's interesting, therefore, that what we get is just a battle scene from a distance, Right, um, and they can identify the good guys and the bad guys. Like they know the guy who fell and died right in front of them was a good guy, because he shouted Gondor. Right, so that kind of gave that away. Um, but all they're doing is just watching men kill each other from a distance. We just have sort of 
battle and death suddenly bursting out of the bushes and like the dead men literally falling on them. Right again, it's uh, that sense of the war is breaking out right now. Battle is happening all around them. Um, and it, so it seems to be kind of initially just establishing that atmosphere. Right. Um, yeah, good. <laughs> yeah, Druid's fire. I was, uh, I was also like the only other word I could think of too that he could be saying that gets cut off is orchestra. But that really, I, I just, I can't, I, I can't make that work. Yeah. yeah. Um, then he relatively quickly decides, no, they should interact with them, right? They should um, <laughs> orchids. <laughs> That's true. That's good, Mike. Yeah. yeah. Orchids, because Sam is so beautiful that he just mistakes him for an orchid. I think that's, uh, uh, I think that's really, I think that's really good. Um, but anyway, okay. So, uh, um, so Tolkien relatively quickly decides, no, they should interact with them, right? Um, that the, the men of Gondor should not just be seen from a distance. Um, we should get, uh, Frodo and Sam interacting with the men of Gondor. The story of the ambush of the Southron men thus seems at this stage to have had no sequel. But from the point where this outline begins, when Sam calls to Gollum that there uh, is some rabbit left if he wants to change his mind, he finds that he has dis- and fi- but finds that he has disappeared. The final form of the story, partly extant in rough drafting, was achieved without hesitation, with, however, one major difference. The leader of the Gondorians was not Faramir, brother of Boromir. At this time, he was Falborn, son of Anborn, and remained so in the manuscript. Mablung and Damrod, the two men who were left to guard Frodo and Sam, told them that Falborn was a kinsman of Boromir, and that he and they were rangers of Athelion, for they were descended from folk who lived in Athelion at one time, before it was overrun. For the rest, Falborn's conversation with Frodo and Sam proceeds almost exactly as does that with Faramir in the Two Towers. Mablung and Damrod used sometimes the common speech, but after the manner of older days, some other, uh, sometimes some other language of their own. But the description of this other tongue was added to the typescript that followed the manuscript at some later time. Their account of the Southrons scarcely differs from the final form, but where Mablung in the Two Towers speaks of those these cursed Barangils, for so we named them, subsequently changed to the later reading. The name Barangils is written in the first map beside Swertings. Okay, so, um, a couple, one really small point, but one that interested me very much, um, rangers, the use of the word rangers, right? We've spent a lot of time talking about rangers, uh, and, you know, we've seen the development of the word rangers, uh, in a couple different directions, right? Back with Trotter, uh, in Bree, um, and, uh, and yes, Stephen, that's the thing, right? Exactly. Um, it's a name they give for themselves. They call themselves rangers, right? We're rangers of Athelion, for we're descended from folk who lived in Athelion at one time before it was overrun, right? Um, now, that is kept in the final text, um, but um, that is the, the phrase, rangers of Athelion, right? But it's not them who use that in the final text. It's Frodo and Sam 
in their own minds, right, are, are realizing that they're rangers of Athelion because now to them, uh, right, af- post the conversation with Gandalf and Rivendell, right, in uh, in many meetings at the beginning of book two, um, when Frodo realizes, you know, when Frodo, Gandalf says that's just what the rangers are, right, the last remnant in the north of the, uh, you know, of, of the great men, um, then, uh, you know, now ranger equals Numenorian, in Frodo's mind, right? So when he sees them, when he's listening to Damrod and Mablung and hearing them talk and reason and realizes that they're speaking Elvish, and this is the, the published text I'm talking about now, um, and realizes that they're speaking Elvish, he's like, oh, they're rangers. They're rangers of Athelion, right? But again, that's because he has now redefined the word ranger in his mind. Um, it's inconsistent, actually. Like so, Tolkien's initial usage here, where they themselves introduce themselves as rangers, um, makes no sense unless he's going to totally change what happened back in Bree. Right? Ranger was a pejorative term used in the Bree land of the uh, of the Numenorians, right? Not uh, a name that they developed for themselves, or certainly anything that would have communicated itself and been adopted by folks down here. Um, so. Uh, so that seems uh, that seems an inconsistency, which I think, which you know, clearly he irons out uh, as he uh, as he moves forward. But okay, so thinking about the story, then again, uh, you know, here as we're looking at the development of the Athelian story, this is the question that is to me always so interesting. As I was saying before, like, what is the what is the germ of it? What is the core of it? What is it like, you know, when he, when he introduces this other scene, okay, I'm trying to avoid saying, why does he do that? Because when I say why, it makes it sound like we're trying to guess like what he was thinking and what exactly his intention and motivation was. And we can't know that. So that's not what I mean. Um, like I was saying about the rabbit story, like what does he, what does he emphasize? What is the, um, what is the core of that story? What is what is happening there? What does it accomplish? Um, so the initial one, the we are just witnesses and nearly, uh, you know, uh, caught up in right the battle, but we become mere spectators of the battle after we escape and climb up a tree. Um, the core of that story seems to be, as I was suggesting, at least my conclusion about that, um, is that I get this, we're seeing war breaking out all around them and the conflict is beginning and uh, they're at risk of getting caught up in it. When he chooses to make it personal um, and for them to be connect, for them to be captured first and to be guarded, you know, by Mablung and Damrod and then uh, for them to meet the captain, Falborn, son of Anborn, what is the core uh, of that story, right? What is the what What does that story become from the spectator of the battle that happens nearby to um, being clearly affiliated, right? In that they are they are literally physically on the side of the Gondorians, right? They're uh, they're they're behind the lines of the Gondorians, and they're being. Uh, being watched slash guarded uh, uh, slash imprisoned right by Mablung and Demrod, um, and then interrogated by Falborn, their captain. Um, what's the um, what's the center? Yes, Brandon asks: Is Mablung someone named for someone in the Silmarillion at this stage? Yep, yeah, definitely. Mablung is definitely there. He's he's a relatively early character who actually has his own proper name, Mablung, um, 
he gets and keeps his name Mablung pretty early on in the process. So yes, Mablung is explicitly a Silmarillion reference there. Yes. Um, but, um, uh, but yeah, so no, this is not exactly a recycling name. This is different. This is an illusion, right? Within the frame of the story, it's an illusion. That is, the Gondorians know uh, the story of Mablung, of the Heavy Hand, and they name so some Gondorian mother somewhere had a baby and said, I want to name him after Mablung, the servant of Thingol. Like, that happened, and they knew that they were doing that on purpose, right? Um, so that's a different thing, Ollie, than we saw when he was just recycling material uh, and concepts and names from the Silmarillion before. Um, this is now part of the... Um, the you know that firewall has come down a while ago, and this is part of how thoroughly now those stories are are being connected here. Um, those legends of the first age, we now are beginning to see more and more the consequences of the fact that the people in the story know them, right? Um, and we see that here uh, pretty uh, pretty pretty quickly. Um, yeah, boomful. It's a lot like people using biblical names. Um, exactly. Yeah. No, that's that seems to be the whole the whole concept there. Um, yeah. Um, and oh, you're right. They do make great teasers for the Silmarillion. I agree. Of course, the Lord of the Rings is full of those, isn't it? Um, but, um, but anyway, okay. So, but back to my question, my question is what is the core of this new story, right? Having shifted it from merely a battle witnessed from a not quite perfectly safe distance, right? Uh, to now them being connected with the people and then meeting the captain afterwards. So the core is not to introduce Faramir, right? Um, because he's not Faramir, right? That is not, that is, uh, the, he has not discovered that yet. Um, he, they're going to be captured by the Gondorians, so we're going to have them interact with the Gondorians, and we're going to have, they're going to be brought into danger, but it's going to be a very different kind of danger, right? You know, in the in the in the original uh, version of it, when they're again when they're just witnessing the battle, they're in danger of getting caught up in the battle. They're in danger of getting mistaken for orcs and killed. Apparently, um, they're in danger of getting you know trampled, you know, uh, uh, you know, smothered by dead bodies. And you know, when a when you're a hobbit and a, a a huge man comes you know toppling over and his corpse falls on you, that's a big deal, right? Um, people can get hurt that way. Um, um, but yeah, Veronica, there's a pretty big danger that the Gondorians are going to get the ring. That that conversation between Anborn, uh, sorry, Falborn, son of Anborn. Um, I love, by the way, how Faramir's old father, Anborn, stays in the company, right? Of course, you'll remember he's the archer uh, who uh, is all ready to shoot Gollum uh, in the published text. Uh, Anborn is. So I, I love how uh, his dad sticks around. Um, <laughs> it's raining men. <laughs> <laughs> James Oakley, yeah, it's not a hallelujah situation, though, right? Yeah, it's raining men has a completely different connotation in this in this context. <laughs> That's really funny. Anyway, okay, so, but but again, so what's the core? Yeah, the danger. So as Veronica says, now we have a direct challenge to the ring. So we get this much more complicated situation where they're not merely in physical danger. They're still in physical danger. The battle is near. If it goes badly for the Gondorians, what's going to happen to them, right? They're still all, you know, that's always on the table. Um, but, but now they're with their allies, right? The Gondorians are their friends, but 
now they have to protect the ring. Um, and Tolkien has created this situation in which now the ring and their quest are in very real danger. Notice how this has escalated, right? Notice how quickly this escalates. Um, this was not, and that's the thing that I find so interesting about the fact that that element, the interaction with Falborn and the interrogation about the ring, is not in any way the centerpiece of the Athelian story, right? Um, in retrospect, right, from the published text, the meeting with Faramir, right, that's totally the center of the Athelian story. Um, but it wasn't initially. That's not what, He doesn't start with saying, okay, on the way to Minas Morgul, let's give them an adventure where they, like, you know, like the ring, it looks like the ring might be taken and they got to figure out what to do. Eventually, he gets them there, but that's not, uh, that's not what he set out to do. Um, but now it's really serious and it's not obvious how they're going to get out of this, right? Um, uh, this could become a really uncomfortable situation. Remember, Tolkien painted himself in a corner once before when he had Frodo being captured and taken to Minas Morgul and Sam getting him out of Minas Morgul, um, and, you know, fighting his way through the Sentinels or the Silent Watchers, if that's what they were at that point. Uh, but then the Nazgul are showing up, because of course they would, right? You know, when the alarm is sounded, and uh, now what? You know, and how do they escape? And then he never finished that, right? You know, he never came back to that. Um, he abandons that whole story, in large part, it seems, because he'd kind of painted himself into a corner. How can they get out? Um, he was, you know, like, one of them puts on the ring and runs away, but there's a Nazgul right there, and what, what does the other one do? And so, anyway, um, he got himself into trouble trying to figure out how to get out of that. It looks like there's a non-zero chance that this has escalated to a point where it's going to be challenging to to figure that out as well. Um, uh, good. Okay. Um, and notice how he we're already getting the linguistic stuff, right? He totally can't help himself. Um, uh they speak sometimes in the common speech, but but after the manner of older days, uh, sometimes some other language of their own, but the description of this other tongue was added to the typescript that followed the manuscript at some later time. Because, of course, we have to describe their language. Ah, obviously, right, you've got to describe their language. Remember, in the published text, he has restrained himself, right? Uh, the fact that they're speaking Elvish to themselves is, uh, among themselves, is a big deal. Right. Um, and it's a big deal, of course, because Frodo's an elf friend. Right. And it's it sort of we know that they're not just like technically the political allies of the good guys. Right. But if they're speaking Elvish among themselves, that that kind of tells you something about them. Uh, fairly significant. But Tolkien kind of refrains from linguistic comment. Right. From philological comment uh, on the Elvish of uh, uh, of the the of, you know, of Mablong and Damrod there. Uh, in the published text, that is not restraint concerning linguistic matters. Is not Tolkien's first impulse when he's writing these things, right? Um, yeah, yeah, he does really indulge his uh, uh, his his philology interests here increasingly as he as as he drafts. Um, 
So anyway, so Christopher says, since it was not until a week later that he referred to the sudden and totally unexpected appearance of Faramir on the scene, it seems to me that when he wrote of the Oliphant episode, for in the manuscript of that chapter that became of herbs and stewed rabbit, the leader of the Gondorians is Falborn, not Faramir, and there is as yet no indication that he will play any further part. So through that whole sequence, um, the the all the way through the interrogation and everything... Um, I love the evidence that we get from the letters, right? Uh, uh, Christopher is clearly uh, relieved, you know. He's um, uh, he's he he. The dating is made so easy through this section by those very detailed letters that his dad wrote to him, telling him exactly the days, the dates on which he wrote what, uh, and by telling him day by day, oh, you know, so today I got as far as this. Um, And so, yeah, this is a great, uh, you know, piece of close reading of those letters by Christopher, um, that since... First, he describes the, the stewed rabbit and the oliphant scene, right, in one letter. And then in the next letter says, oh my gosh, like, this new character Faramir has appeared and he won't shut up, right? Uh, I mean, that's not Tolkien's exact word. It's not a direct quotation, but that's essentially what Tolkien says about him, right? Um, uh, but anyway, um, so so Faramir, so that character of the captain and the interrogation, Faramir's role in the story, his initial role in the story is invented before he, the character Faramir, is developed, right? He's not Faramir yet. Um, there is a captain of the Gondorians who is not yet Faramir. Um, he is not being introduced. The interrogation scene, as let me I try to say again the same thing I'm trying to say in a different way. The purpose of the interrogation scene is not to introduce the character of the captain, right? Um, it's not a setup for... Not if I found it by the highway would I take it, right? It's not a setup for that. Because if you have a character who's going to say something like that and mean it, that's a big deal, right? It's not until he becomes Faramir that he's going to start talking like that. Um, initially, he's just doing the interrogation and he's just like, you, you, you know, you've got to come quiet, right? Uh, he, just arrest, he just arrests Frodo. Um, he's not in himself a big deal, so what the initial impulse, the, the the initial core of that story seems to be the danger to the ring, the danger of at least the 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 pausing or the the diverting of their journey. How are they going to get out of it? How are they going to escape? This is a danger to be overcome, not a mechanism for the introduction of a really awesome new character. Um, yeah, Stephen, it is kind of like that, isn't it? So uh, basically, here's... If it helps, and it won't, um, but if it helps, you can think to yourself when you watch the Peter Jackson movies that uh, um, it's, it's, it's actually Falborn that he's depicting there, right? Because it is, right? Falborn's going to capture him and he's going to take him to Minas Tirith, right? That's just what Falborn would do. Uh, so there you go. Okay. But speaking of the linguistic stuff, this was uh, what, uh, another thing I, I was... Uh, uh, really noticing um, throughout this chapter here. He turned and spoke, this is Sam, uh, turned and spoke in Frodo's ear. I could almost sleep on my legs, Mr. Frodo, he said, and you've not had much yourself. But these men are friends, it seems. They they seem to come from Boromir's country, all right. Though they don't quite trust us, I can't see any cause to doubt them. 
and we're done anyway if they turn nasty. So we'd best rest. By the way, I just love that rationale. That is totally, again, Sam is my hero in so many ways, right? Um, there's nothing we can do, right? There's nothing we can do. We're pretty much helpless here. If, they, if they're going to attack us, like, they're going to kill us whether we're paying attention or not, right? So why, why Stinger? I'm, I'm just going to sleep. Since there's nothing I can do to resist it anyway, like, might as well get some rest, right? Uh, I, I, I love uh, the, Sam's reaction. It's, that's Hobbit sense, Right? I th- that is Hobbit sense in action right there. I think that it's... And notice that's kind of a... It's kind of a trend with Sam, right? Sam is uh, Sam is the spokesperson of Hobbit sense pretty, pretty frequently, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Yama thinks it's curious that the ring isn't really brought up as a potential escape route here. Um, yeah, yeah. And uh, Yama, I guess I would... Uh, I would expand that a little bit to say it's interesting to me that in these outlines and sketches and things and and early drafts that we're getting, almost nowhere in any of this material um, do we get glimpses into what Frodo is thinking or meaning or intending or, like, you know, is he being tempted by the ring? Does he want to do this or that? You know, we get a bunch of Sam dialogue, right? A little bit of Frodo dialogue, but very little what was Frodo experiencing, what was Frodo thinking. Um, and that's, um, and that's, that's kind of interesting. Um, okay, anyway, uh, so here's Sam's very pragmatic, I agree, Patricia, uh, his very pragmatic uh, uh, reasoning here. Sleep if thou wilt, said Mablung. We will guard thee and thy master until Falborn comes. Falborn will return hither if he has saved his life. But when he cometh, we must move swiftly. All this tumult will not go unmarked, and ere night is old, we shall have many pursuers. We shall need, we shall need all speed to gain the river first. Okay, archaic speech, right? Yeah, after the manner of old of old times, absolutely after the manner of old times, we get the uh, very pronouncedly uh, archaic um, uh, speech of the Gondorians, right? And it's not just about the verb conjugation, right? It's not just about uh, you know the thee and the thys and the uh, uh, and the cometh. Right, it's it's not just about that. It's about the it's about the phrasing. Um, it's about the word choice. Right, if he has saved his life, is um, you know again that's a a very archaic way to express that. Like if he makes it back alive, we might say right. You know if he lives, um, if he has saved his life, um, yeah, yeah. Um, all this tumult will not go unmarked. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, he's uh, he's really getting into it. Right. Um, interesting that his first impulse is to have a clearly audible difference between Hobbit talk and Gondorian talk. Right. Um, that difference in accent, you know, that different difference in speech, which is still commented on numerous times um, in uh, in. The published text, right? Everyone notices that Pippin's speech is very strange compared to the way that everybody in Gondor talks. But we, the readers, don't hear it, right? Um, it's there's a there's a there's a difference in diction, you know, between Pippin's language and like Baragon's language. But 
nothing like this extreme. Um, uh, yeah, gaining the river, Stephen. Yeah, that's another. That's another great, uh, great example here. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. James, I think we did get auto corrected. Uh, how it c- corrected thy to they there the they master. Yeah, I think so. Right, but see again, that's a good. It's just kind of drawing attention to it, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, um, what else was I going to say? Oh, yeah. So. So the difference is not primarily one of accents. It's one of, of formalism and archaism um, of speech. Uh, so, and, but, but also notice, I can't help but think that um, though they don't quite trust us, I can't see any cause to doubt them, and we're done anyway if they turn nasty, so we'd best rest. Sam's language seems kind of aggressively Samwise, right? Kind of aggressively hobbitish, aggressively uh, uh, kind of bumpkinish, right? In this, um, in that speech, uh, which seems to me just to strongly emphasize the difference in uh, uh, in in the, the 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 register of their words here. Though they don't quite trust us, straight to we will guard thee and thy master until Falborn comes, right? That's um, it's a you can you can uh, uh, you can hurt your neck right whipping from one to the other uh, right there. Uh, notice that that this is gonna sort of level out, right? Um, we do, we we're not gonna see him turn explicitly away from this. The speech of the Gondorians throughout these drafts is still more elevated, I think. Um, by and large, than the uh, the published text. But as he revises, as he moves forward, it starts to kind of come closer and closer, um, less and less overtly um, archaic. We uh, we we lose the we lose we lose the haths and the thy and the comeths uh, pretty quickly, right? And then the sentence structure and the 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 um, you know the syntax modernizes too as we move forward still not very modern still different from Sam's um, but nothing like that first speech okay now here is Frodo near the pitch of danger right this seems to be what this whole scene has been building up to this whole like why have we had them captured why you know what is the outcome of the conversation with Falborn Uh, here we come but the words said, with Isildur's bane in hand, said Falborn, if you are the half-high, then you should have that thing in hand, whatever it might be. Have you it not? Or is it hidden because you choose to hide it? Were Boromir here, he would answer your question, said Frodo, and since Boromir was many days ago at Rauros on the way to your city, if you return swiftly, you will learn the answer. By the way, I love that line, if you return swiftly, right? If you get going right now, in fact, you should run! Go! Go! <laughs> right? I love, the, I love the subtext of Frodo, right? Leave me alone. Right away! Right? Um... Anyway, if you return swiftly, you will learn the answer. My part in this company was known to him, and to all, and to Lord Elrond indeed. The the errand given to me brings me into this land, and it is not wise that any enemy of the Dark Lord should hinder it. I see there is more in this than I first perceived, said Falborn, but I too am under command, to slay or take prisoner, as reason justifies, all found in Ithilien. There is no cause to slay thee. Okay, so... 
again, notice we see the um, uh, the 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 tight place, right? That Frodo is put in. On the one hand, you know he's 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 coming off pretty well. I agree, Mike. He's uh, he's he's firm. Uh, he. He, he he makes a good speech. He makes a good return uh, to Falborn here uh, in this passage. And yet, what can he do? And notice, Falborn's hands are tied much more. He is not the captain general, right? He is not the son of the steward. He is not the captain of the armies of Minas Tirith. He does not have the same authority that Faramir will eventually have, Right? And so he says he is under command, right? He's he's a he's a captain. He's an officer, right? But he's just an, he's you know he's got a chain of command that he's got to answer to, and he's got his marching orders to slay or take prisoner as reason justifies. All found in Athelion. I've got two choices, right? And we end with there is no cause to slay thee, right? So Falborn is not going to be terribly stubborn. Right, he's not just going to insist on having them killed. Um, Tolkien isn't ratcheting the, you know, the danger up to that level, right? Where there, he's not going to set up an execution scene and have, uh, you know, Gollum come running in and uh, rescuing them from the gallows or something like that. Like, you know, he he's not going that direction. He does have Falborn be, you know, tough but fair, right? And to have him to show justice, uh, you know, sort of tinged with mercy here uh, to Frodo. But, uh, but what can Falborn do, right? I mean, this is sort of, this is the end of this particular draft, and and again, you can you can sort of see he's kind of he's a little bit maybe a little bit stuck here. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Jennifer, yeah, that's interesting. Jennifer Pope says uh, uh, she finds it strange that uh, the people who know the the poem, right, who clearly uh, know the verse, assume that Frodo's carrying the bane around with him. Um, obviously, he had it in Imladris, but why assume he still has it now, right? Um, yeah, that is a, a sort of a charmingly simplistic interpretation of that line, the first one that he comes to. If you were the half-high, then you should have that thing in your hand. It's almost like you're expecting him to say, like, open up your hand! It's there, right? Like you, obviously, you carry it around in your hand at all times. Um... Uh, but you know he then sort of moves off from that. Like, do you have have you it not, or is it hidden because you choose to hide it? Um, at least you should, at least you should know of it, right? Um, but um, yeah, um, but Jennifer, Jennifer, you know it's one one of, one of my favorite elements of this. Uh, notice, and I didn't quote all of these, but, you know, in several of the different versions of this scene that Tolkien did, because of course he did a whole bunch of versions, apparently all within a week of each other. Um, but uh, but anyway, the, the different versions that he did, we can see... I love the evidence that Tolkien is revising the poem. And that's the coolest thing, right? So Falborn is quoting half of one line of the poem. But each time he drafts it, each time Tolkien drafts it, the half line is different, right? With Isildur's pain and bane in hand, and then there's a, there's there's at least three different versions of that line, and of course, Falborn's dialogue has to be uh, has to be adapted to what the actual line is. But of course, that line is. Um, uh, is key because it's it's part of the rhyming structure of the whole poem. So it's 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 fairly clear that 
as he's quoting it, as Tolkien quotes the poem, the quoting of the poem is leading him to rethink the line. So it's like, with Isildur's Bane, oh, I don't like Isildur's Bane in hand, right? So I gotta, I, I've got to go back and rewrite that poem, and then he rewrites it, and he incorporates the new version, and then he doesn't like that one, and he's got to go back and rewrite the poem again, and we see him, we see him change that. I really, I really love that. Um, Kate, that's a really great thought. Um, that, uh, uh, you know, Kate says that, uh, you know, this character, Falborn, uh, in terms of position is, uh, in a sense, even, of course, like, he is playing the role that Faramir is, is eventually going to play, and indeed, he is delivering many of the lines that Faramir is going to deliver, um, but really, uh, in terms of his role in the story, he's more of a forerunner of Baragond, right? Um, and I agree with that, Kate. I think that we can see, it does seem that the germ of that particular story nugget, right? Uh, boy, talk about mixed metaphors, you can't have a germ of a nugget, can you? Um, Anyway, the, the, the germ of that particular story, uh, uh, story plant, right, story flower, uh, is a, you know, the sto- of the, the faithful soldier with divided loyalties, right, having to decide, does he do the right, does he follow orders, or does he do the, you know, the right thing, which means breaking orders and, and, and doing what seems like the wrong thing. Um, yeah, that that whole concept of the the division of loyalties and and uh, uh, um, uh, and yeah, that the the problem that Baragond is going to obviously it's not exactly the same, um, but the the core concept of that seems seems to be lurking around uh, in Falborn's future, right? Because I can only see two. I mean, maybe I'm just not thinking creatively enough, but I can only think of two uh, ready ways of getting Frodo and Sam out of this tight spot that Tolkien has put them in with Falborn here. Um, One is for Falborn to relent, right? Falborn would just have to be talked around to letting them go. Um, So how's that going to happen? That's going to take some doing, right? And the other alternative is for them to to escape or to be rescued, right? Um, Those seem to me really kind of the two options. Um, okay, <laughs> back to another version of the. Uh, so Tolkien does an, does another draft of the debate. I love this line. Um, I remember that he bore a horn. He said at last of Boromir. Obviously, thou rememberest well as one who hath verily seen him. Said Feldborn. Notice we're still archaic. Then maybe thou canst see it in thy mind's eye. A great horn of the wild ox of the eastern wilderness, changed to a wild ox of the east, bound with silver, and written with his name, struck out, worn upon a silver chain. Notice that? Oh, that's so cool, isn't it? He doesn't want Boromir's name on it, right, because he decides, probably, that he wants it to be hereditary, right, you know, passed down from generation to generation, so he's worn upon a silver chain. But notice how that... Bound with silver and written with his name changed to bound with silver worn upon a silver chain. Notice how it almost scans the same and practically rhymes, right? He wants a sentence that sounds almost... That's kind of cool. Anyway. uh, That horn the waters of Anduin brought unto us maybe changed to brought unto us more than seven nights now gone. An ill token we thought it and boding little joy to Denethor father of Boromir. For the horn was cloven in twain as by sword or axe. The halves of it came severally to shore. Falborn's account of how the pieces of the horn were found now follows as in the two towers, ending, But murder will out, tis said. Then he continues, 
Dost thou not know of the cleaving of the horn, or who cast it over Raurus, to drown it forever in the eddies of the fall, doubtless? No, said Frodo, I do not know, but none of our company has the will for such a deed, and none the strength, unless it, was, unless it were Aragorn. But though it may be a token of ill, a cloven horn does not prove the wearer's death. Um, so, Frodo was doing really well in the other draft, standing up to, to be, uh, this is, um, I think that, um, I think that if Frodo had a defense attorney, his defense attorney would be telling him to shut up now, right? Uh, you're over-talking here, Frodo. <laughs> uh, 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 whew, yeah. Um, so, yeah, um. I just, I just, I know he doesn't actually mean to throw Aragorn under the bus, right? But doesn't it kind of sound like he's suggesting Aragorn is a suspect, right? I couldn't have killed Boromir. You should be, you should be, you should be bringing Aragorn in for questioning, totally, because he's the only one of us who could possibly have done it. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, one other thing that I notice here, notice how, um, um, notice how Frodo is echoing. Not exactly. Like, he's not adopting the full archaism of um, Falborn's words here, but he is not speaking like his normal self, right? Um, he is echoing back to Fal- He is speaking to Falborn in deliberately formalized terms. Um, he conjugates his verbs and, you know, his pronouns and his verbs are his normal pronouns and verbs, but his syntax is like Falborn's syntax, right? Um, none of our company has the will for such a deed and none the strength, right? Uh, that's like uh, the kind of syntax that Falborn might use. Though it may be a token of ill, a cloven horn does not prove the wearer's death. That, too, is a very uh, um, uh, archaic structure there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but, uh, and I love Falborn's suggestion that the reason the horn pieces came to light is that somebody chucked him over Rauros in order to, in order to hide the evidence, right? Uh, uh, he, he's clearly got it descripted in his mind, right? The, the irony of the thing. Right, they probably chucked the cloven horn uh, over the in order to hide their vile deed, and yet the very action that they took in order to conceal their deed is what has revealed them. Uh, that's that's classic, right? Murder will out. Um, uh, there's uh, there's a Canterbury tale about murder will out, right? Um, that was a famous Middle English saying. Um, so, uh, so yeah, uh, um, that is, that is, uh, it, it is used twice in the Canterbury Tales, uh, Sharon, you're right. Um, it's, uh, one of the, one of the few direct Chaucer quotes, uh, that we get in the Lord of the Rings, and notice that he, Falborn, um, and Faramir after him, are quoting it as a proverb, right? It's a traditional saying, um, inherited from bygone days, right? So, uh, murder will out, and the concept, murder will out, that is a supernatural thing, right? This is not sooner or later we'll find you, um, you know, this is not, um, what you're gonna do when they come for you, right? This is, 
supernaturally, um, murder is 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 hateful to God, and murder will be revealed. Um, supernatural portents often accompanied murder uh, in. Uh, in, in, in medieval stories. Um, for instance, one very common thing is that uh, one way in which you could tell the murderer, uh, often when a murderer, and en- when, when, when the murderer enters the room where the corpse of his victim is lying, the corpse's wounds will begin to bleed afresh in the presence uh, of, the, uh, of the murderer. Murder will out. It just, um, it just happens. Um, so, and then of course you have like other examples of like corpses speaking and 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 uh, identifying their uh, their murderers, and yeah, Hamlet is exactly playing off of that, right? The character Hamlet um, is um, trying to get Claudio to betray himself because what he's playing on is not just sort of Claudio's own sense of guilt, but uh, or Claudius's, not Claudio, that's a different Shakespeare character, uh, Claudius's sense of guilt. Um, but it, it's not just his sense of guilt in like the modern sense or even in uh, uh, Stephen, like the telltale heart, you know, uh, uh, Edgar Allan Poe kind of way, um, but rather within that medieval Renaissance worldview a murderer has every reason to suspect that his victim is actually going to... There's going to be a supernatural portent. As indeed there is, right? The ghost, Hamlet goes to Hamlet's father, is the kind of thing that happens, right? When the victim comes back and uh, his shade appears. And remember Gorlim, right? Um, Gorlim, it's a different situation. It's not a murder situation. I mean, of course, Gorlim was murdered, but uh, it's not exactly that. But um, anyway, it's like that, right? Again, the idea of like the unquiet spirit of he who is murdered, that's another way in which murder often uh, comes out. In other words, when Falborn says murder will out, what he is saying is, see the shards of the, you know, the, 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 the two halves of the horn were discovered that was if not miraculous, at least deliberately providential. Uh-oh. <laughs> Sorry. Hope my power doesn't go out. It's a very windy day here. Uh, are you guys Are you guys still hearing me? Am I coming through okay here? Okay. Good. <laughs> Sorry. Some very serious brownout action happening with my power here. Okay. Good. Alright. Tell me if you can't hear me anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Whew, okay, let me hurry up. Um, okay, so yeah, so so he is bringing this forward as as evidence of a supernatural intervention to reveal the murderers, which is why it is so, uh, uh, which is why it is so. Uh, that's why he's bringing it forward to Frodo, right? Because this seems like just how it sort of is supposed to work, right? Um, it's supposed... We're su- miraculous uh, um, clues are supposed to be emerging like just so as to convict the suspect who will be revealed. And Frodo seems to fit that bill, right? So um, from a kind of medieval point of view, Falborn is being an excellent prosecution uh, uh, barrister here. Frodo, not 
do, <laughs> putting up a particularly good defense here. Um, yeah. And Veronica, no, they don't consider that Boromir may have died in battle. It's interesting, isn't it, that that doesn't seem to occur to them? Um, oh, and someone was asking about this earlier. The halves of it came severally to shore. Uh, that's a that's a lovely word, um, a lovely archaic usage. Severally uh, is uh, a, 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 an excellent adverb, um, which just means for if they come severally to shore, it means they didn't come together, right? They came at different times and in different places. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay, let's keep going. The account of the boat bearing the body of Boromir is, for most of its length, very close indeed to that in the Two Towers, and it is here, most curiously, that Falborn becomes Boromir's brother, though he does not change his name. It was Boromir, my brother, dead. It is as if he slipped without conscious decision, that is, Tolkien, not Falborn or Boromir. It is as if he slipped without conscious decision into the role that had been, oh no, okay, it is Falborn, that had been preparing for him. What else could he be, this captain of Gondor, so concerned with Frodo's story and the fate of Boromir? Right? Um, his relationship with Boromir emerges spontaneously, right? This is one of those wonderful examples of, like, a character says something. You can almost hear Tolkien. You can almost see Tolkien, right? He writes that sentence. It was Boromir, my brother, dead. And then he's kind of like, oh! Oh! Falborn is Boromir's brother! Oh! Well, that's good to know, right? Um, it's hard to it's hard to remember any other passage uh, in these drafts, where we have, where we see him discover something in mid-flow, uh, more, more, more suddenly, right, more, more directly. Um, uh, Yana, I do believe that they are assuming that Boromir is too awesome to be killed in combat, so it must be treachery. Uh, yes, and re- I think that we can hear um, a, a, a sort of a, a remnant of that concept. Um, in Denethor's words in The Return of the King, um, when he says to Pippin, when he's getting Pippin to tell his story, right? Him so mighty a man and only orcs to withstand him, right? Um, I, as if orcs could kill Boromir. Come on now, right? It doesn't matter how many orcs there were, right? And only orcs to withstand him. So yeah, I, I do think that's exactly what they're thinking. Obviously, Boromir couldn't have been killed in battle. That's totally implausible. And so therefore, he must have been treacherously stabbed. Uh, and there are probably wounds like in the back of his mighty knee. And that's how you can tell it was these little runtish half-high that uh, that did him in. Um uh, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so yeah, so Falborn becomes Boromir's brother at the moment of this vision. So think about that for a second. It is the it is in the recounting of the vision of his his vision of the boat, right? Of the of of Boromir's corpse laid out in the in the in the boat full of water. Um, it is in that it is that moment which leads Tolkien to discover that Falborn is actually Boromir's brother, um, and that gives an eve to me. It gives a really an even deeper poignancy to that moment when I think about Faramir in the published text describing that. Right, um, that there are lots of, again, I, I, you know, thinking in those same terms that I've been using, right? Like, what is the core 
of that story? What is the what is the center? What is the what is the main purpose of that story? The main core, the heart of the vision of dead Boromir in the boat story element, right? The heart of that element is not mysterious vision from beyond the grave, right? It's not a portent. Uh, it's not as a um, a sign of doom. It's not. It's it is that moment of intimacy, right? It is that moment of the revelation to um, to to near kin, right? The encounter, the opportunity that Faramir is given to say goodbye to his dead brother, right? That's the core of the story. So close to the core, so much at the heart of that moment that the relationship itself is revealed by that vision. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, anyway, going on. The boat turned into the stream. Sorry, the boat turned into the stream. Sorry, yeah. The boat turned into the stream and passed into the night. Others saw it, some near at hand, others from far off, but none dare touch it, nor maybe would even the evil hands of those that hold us Gileath dare to hinder it. This, I thought, was a vision, though one of evil boding, and even when I heard the tale of others, we doubted, Denethor, my father, and I, if it were more, though it boded evil. But none can doubt the horn. It lies now cloven in twain upon the lap of Denethor, and messengers ride far and wide to learn news of Boromir. Cloven in twain, by the way, that's one of my favorite Sir Thomas Mallory phrases. That is straight out of Lamor Tarthur. Uh, things get cloven in twain a lot in Mallory. Normally, of course, it's people's helmets that get cloven in twain. Uh, but still, um, I, ever since I was in high school and first read Mallory, have um, always associated the word cloven with the word twain uh, in that way. Uh, yeah, cloven in twain is, is that's classic classic. Um, but, um, anyway, uh, just like rent asunder are two words that I, like, you know, I, I can't, like, would, would you use the word asunder with anything other than rent, right? I, I wouldn't. Um, but, uh, anyway, uh, so others saw it, right? It wasn't just to him that this vision came, even though, again, it's that, it's, you know, the core of that vision is the intimacy and the revelation of their close relationship. Um, it is seen by others. We, we, we get it vouched for. So that Falborn, as he still is, um, has reason to believe that this was a real vision, right? That this was a legitimate thing um, and, not, um, and not just a, a, a lying vision that he saw. Um, and that none dare touch it. Even the evil hands of those that hold us Gileath would not dare to hinder it. Uh, that's a nice touch. That, of course, is not in the published text. Okay. Back to the interview. Right, back to the, to the trial of Frodo here with Falborn. Well, said Falborn, if thou wilt have dealings with the mistress of magic that something if <laughs> it ends with f but i'm not sure what the verb is right that something if added dwells um abideth would be my guess just 
by who knows. Um, in the Golden Witch, goodness knows Christopher Tolkien is better at interpreting Tolkien's rapid scrawl than I am. Um, that something F in the Golden Wood, then they must look for strange things and evil things to follow. This was too much for Sam's patience. He stood up and walked into the debate. Not evil from Lorien, he said. Begging your pardon, Mr. Frodo, he said, but I have been listening to a deal of this talk. Let's come to the point before all the orcs of Mordor come down on us. Now look here, Thalborn of Gondor, if that is your name. The men looked in amazement, not in merriment, at the small something hobbit planted firmly on his feet before the seated figure of the captain. What are you getting at? If you think we murdered your brother and then ran away, say so, and say what you mean to do about it. Um... The delightful fact that Sam leaps up and defies Falborn to his face comes not when he's accusing Frodo of stabbing Boromir in the back. Uh, Frodo is perfectly capable of defending himself, right? But when he speaks evil of the elves, right? Forget about that. <laughs> Sam uh, Sam jumps up. Uh, not evil from Lorien. I've been listening to a deal of this talk, right? Sam has had enough. He's fed up. Um, uh, and this is, uh, this is really cool. But again, that's a major difference, right, from the published text, that it's the elves uh, that he comes in and, uh, and he just can't, um, uh, he, he just can't, just can't, just can't handle that. Um, Oh, yeah, the other thing, of course, uh, that I was going to mention there, which, of course, was not ironic at the time, um, but, of course, in retrospect, is deliciously ironic. Falborn of Gondor, if that is your name, which, of course, it isn't, right? It turns out his real name is Faramir. So Sam somehow knew that Falborn wasn't actually his real name, which is great. Um, But, again, notice how Falborn... Falborn does not metamorphose into Faramir right away, right? That moment when uh, Tolkien realizes that Falborn is uh, Boromir's brother, it, it doesn't, he doesn't become Book Faramir immediately, right? Um, uh, he's now Boromir's brother, but everything else about him seems to be still pretty much the same. Right, he still speaks like a common soldier might speak, like the Rohirrim speak. Um, he doesn't have any wizardly or elvish wisdom that we see that is so striking about Faramir. Right, um, he's not going to be. He is not yet different in those ways. Um, he is. There isn't that sense of sort of greatness of insight, greatness of mind that Faramir uh, is going to eventually have. Um, he doesn't get that right away. Um, so Falborn, the captain, who puts Frodo in the tight place, and now we have to figure out what's going to happen with Frodo and his Falborn going to find out about the ring. Is he going to try to take the ring? Tune in next time, right? That's where we were leading up to in this scene. Now, wait, Falborn is Boromir's brother. That changes things, but notice what it changes is it ratchets up their danger, right? More is at stake in this trial now. This is not just, you killed Boromir, our captain general, right? That's bad enough, right? You killed my brother? That is serious business, right? You don't want to be 
Um, you don't want to be up f- on a murder trial before a judge when it's the judge's own brother who is the victim in the case, right? That is not good. I mean, Sam's words there, if you think we murdered your brother and then ran away, say so, and say what you mean to do about it. You know, Sam's direct challenge really lays it out, right? Are, are, is this going to be a vengeance thing? Are you, do you, are you looking for a wear guild? Are you, are you wanting to take it out? Are you going to take vengeance on us uh, because you think we killed your brother? Um it's uh, it's it's definitely it's definitely a big deal here, right? Um, and yes, Bruce, the fact that Boromir tried to take the ring from Frodo, obviously, um, if anything, the 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 initial link to Boromir, right? The family link to Boromir is troubling. If anything, it fits, right? It fits into the this, you know. So okay, great, you know, you you escape Boromir, and now you've been captured by his brother, and you're in a worse spot than you were before. Um, at least when Boromir cornered you, the two of you were alone and you could give him the slip, right? Um, so, uh, so yeah, uh, you know, whether it is exactly Matthew, whether it's an Inigo Montoya situation or whether this is, you know, Boromir part two, the revenge, um, it, it, what we still have is Frodo in danger, very pointed danger, very, very serious danger, uh, danger of his life, but also direct danger of the quest and of the ring. Um, so, in other words, the changing to Boromir's brother has only intensified the initial dynamic of that scene. It's not yet really changed the story or or transformed Falborn's character. As you can tell, he still has his name. And, uh, Brianna, I agree with you. It is almost as if having put that line, if that is your name, into Sam's mouth, right? It's almost like Talking, once he writes that, he can't unhear it, right? If that's his name, wait, is it his name? <laughs> Actually, no. Turns out, turns out it isn't. Um, okay. Uh, skipping ahead here. Uh, uh, I love. Christopher's comment here on the two halves of the story. Here this third phase of drafting C ends. It is curious that in the completed manuscript, Sam's intervention has entirely disappeared. Um, The dialogue between Faramir and Frodo in the passage where it originally took place now reaches the form in the two towers, and Faramir no longer expressed so conventional a view of the Lady of the Golden Wood. So that seems to be why Sam's intervention entirely disappeared. Right? It disappeared because... Tolkien decided to make um, uh, to make Faramir his name has changed now in this draft um, so he, he's decided to make Faramir not speak evil of the Lady of the Woods so there's no reason for Sam to intervene right uh, but of course he's Tolkien right so the th- you know Tolkien never throws away anything that ends up on the cutting room floor uh, it is in his he doesn't have a cutting room floor right he has a careful cutting room uh, tray right in like a drawer right there in his desk so that it's always ready for him to pull out whatever he cut before to use again. So Sam's intervention, Sam's interruption, uh, is going to come back and get placed earlier on, right? Um, so that makes a fair bit of sense. But the point, of course, that uh, Christopher is making here is that the entire first part of the story, right to the end of the interview, right the end of the trial, that gets written and rewritten and rewritten and revised until it is almost word for word exactly the form in the two towers um, with just that one exception. It's exactly the form before anything else was written, right? Before Henneth Anun 
was even a concept before any of their their later conversation was mapped out. He had no idea where the Faramir story was going before he had totally perfected and revised this first half, the trial scene, right? Um, So that's, um, that's, that's pretty cool. Yana said, does that mean Oda will even still come back, right? Uh, Well, you know, can't rule it out, right? At least Odo, you have to admit, Odo put up a pretty good fight. Um, Anyway, okay, let's keep going. It is plain, I think, that at this point, at Frodo's words, go back, Faramir, valiant captain, and defend your city while you may, and let me alone where my doom takes me. The writing of the manuscript was halved, and at that time, nothing further had been written. In other words, this chapter, in terms of composition, falls into two parts— all up to this point, apart from the absence of Sam's outburst, having been brought virtually to the final form before the story proceeded. So again, thinking in those terms that I've been trying to push here tonight, what is the core of this story, right? The core, the, so the, this, this danger to the ring, this threat to Frodo, this I've been cornered by the brother of Boromir who might end up being worse even than Boromir was. It's certainly, I'm in a worse place than I was when I was cornered by Boromir. That's the core of this first story. Now, the whole second part. After this, how's the how is that going to change the story, right? How is that going to develop? Because that's 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 the next stage. And I know that seems like an obvious thing. Yes, what comes next is the next stage, right? Um, but of course, as we see so many times before, what's going to come next is going to totally transform what happened in this earlier scene, right? Um, and Faramir, of course, is going to become a quite different person. So. What happens? Where do we go? What happens next? Very rough and here and there altogether illegible, outline sketches show my father's preliminary thoughts for its continuation. One of these, impossibly difficult to read, begins at the point where the draft C ends, with Faramir still speaking to Sam. But you have not the manners of orcs, nor their speech, and indeed Frodo your master has an air that I cannot something or other, an elvish air, maybe. In this text, Faramir shows no hesitation about his course, and does not postpone his decision, but concludes sternly, You shall be well treated, but make no doubt of it. Until my father Denethor releases you, you are prisoners of Gondor. Do not try to escape, if you do not wish to be slain. Then follows. In a few minutes, they were on their way again down the slopes. Hobbits, tired, Mablung carries Sam. They get to the fenced camp in a dense wood of trees ten miles away. They had not gone far before Sam suddenly said to Frodo, Gollum, well, thank heavens we've lost him. But Frodo not so sure. We have still to get into Mordor, he said, and we do not know the way. Gollum rescues them. The last three words are very unclear, but I have no doubt that this is what they are, though what story lay behind them will never be known. Okay, so first impulse, right? As Tolkien goes on to continue this story, what do we see? Well, what we see is that he's going to continue telling the same, the same story. Initially, the following action does not change the earlier story, right? What we get is the final closing of the trap, right? What is the end of the trial? The end of the trial is their incarceration, right? You are prisoners of Gondor. Do not try to escape if you do not wish to be slain. So Faramir is going to be, is going to be firm. He's not going to be, he's not going to like chop off their heads on the spot or anything. Um, but he is going to, he is going to hold them prisoner, right? So 
them in a tight place. What happens? How are they going to escape? Faramir's not going to let them go. Gollum is going to rescue them, right? Um, remember, remember that the initial core of the of the stewed rabbit scene um, seemed to be primarily interested in the three-way dynamic between Sam, Frodo, and Gollum, right? Or at least Sam's relationship with Gollum and Frodo's relationship with Gollum sort of contrasted, right? Um, this potentially seems to be a further development of that. Notice we get Sam's comment on Gollum. Thank heavens we've lost him. And then we get Frodo's response. We still need him. We need to get into Mordor and we don't know the way, right? So don't be so hasty about being glad to get rid of Gollum. Um, And then Gollum is going to rescue them, right? Which, of course, is going to then set up another really interesting set of dynamics there. Um, We have no idea how that was going to happen or what was going to go on. But again, remember, this is logical, right? This is perfectly logical. He has put them in in danger, in a tight place, and now he somehow needs to extract them. And I think actually this could have been... uh, I think that this could have been really interesting, right? Now, I do agree, Ariel, that it would have been tricky... Right, uh, Ariel says she has a hard time believing Gollum would be capable of making a rescue against the Rangers. Totally fair, right? Um, it's hard to see how it could be managed by Gollum, but you know he's very cunning, so maybe he could pull it off. Um, but again, I kind of like the idea. Actually, um, thinking about uh, what's this going to do to Sam's relationship with Gollum, you know, think of like the additional. The additional gratitude that they're going to owe to Gollum, how Gollum will have won their trust by staying faithful to them and rescuing them at risk of his own neck. Um, but, of course, it's right before he's about to betray them. So, uh, so you know, that, that makes sort of the turnaround more, um, uh, more extreme there. I, I don't know. I mean, I think that that could have been handled pretty well, actually. But, um, but anyway, as I say... We've got the same story. Then we get the shift, right? But you must know, says Faramir to them, um, but you must know that much is known in Minas Tirith that is not spoken aloud. Therefore I dismissed my men. Gandalf was here. We the rulers know that Isildur carried off the ruling ring. Now this is a terrible matter. I can well guess that Boromir, proud, ever anxious for the glory of Minas Tirith and his own renown, might wish to seize it. I guess that you have the ring though how it could... something or other. The rest of the sentence is illegible. The brief sketch ends with Faramir's words, I would not touch it if it lay by the highway, and his expression of his love for and desires for Minas Tirith. The last words are, I could advise you if you would tell me more. It is a pity that the passage about the ring is so brief and elliptical, but the implication must surely be that the rulers of the city knew that Isildur carried off the ruling ring because Gandalf has had told them. This, of course, was not at all the way in which the story would unfold when it came to be written down. Yes, um, neither element of it, of course, neither Gandalf, what Gandalf tells whom and when, um, or, uh, of course, Faramir, just knowing that, obviously, the Ring of Power was taken from Sauron by Isildur. Um, um, 
remember that's a surprise to Boromir in the published text. That's a surprise to Boromir at the Council of Elrond, uh, and Faramir is near but not in the gold. Right? Uh, he he figures there was something of Sauron's that was taken by Isildur, but he doesn't know that it was the ruling ring. Um, anyway, uh, so the story begins to change. The whole story of you know, the hobbits and the Gondorians, you know, the Gondorian rangers, um, that story begins to shift from just a Frodo, Frodo and the ring are in danger story. Uh, and of course, Faramir's character begins to shift at the moment that he knows or finds out that, that he has the ring, which is another really interesting moment, isn't it? Another really interesting moment of discovery. Because remember, in a sense, this is just the, this is just the um, extension, the logical extension of the story he'd been telling. It's like he takes this story, you know, he takes this concept and he pushes it and pushes it and pushes it, and then he pushes it one step further, and the one step further that he pushes it completely alters everything, right? Um, Here's Frodo being interrogated about, you know, being the half high from the, uh, you know, who's supposed to be holding Isildur's bane in his hand, right? Um, he's being interrogated about, Bor- you know, suspected of murdering Boromir. He's imprisoned, right? He's going to incarcerated and he's going to be hauled off to Gondor and if he tries to escape, he's going to be killed. What's the final level of danger, right? The final level of danger is Faramir, the captain, discovers that he has the ring of power, right? Um, push finally comes to shove, and the ring is revealed, and everything comes to a crisis. And when it happens, Tolkien discovers that Faramir actually wouldn't take the ring, right? Uh, Faramir, we have no reason to believe that Far, that Far, you know, Falborn and then Faramir is not like Boromir's mini-me, right? Until he finds out that he's the ring, and then as soon as Faramir finds out that, it, that, that uh, Frodo has the ring, he becomes a different character, right? Tolkien discovers, actually, no, this guy, this guy wouldn't take it. This guy is not like his brother. And we can see from his own words about Boromir, he did not speak of Boromir this way before, right? Proud, ever anxious for the glory of Minas Tirith and his own renown. Um, this is different, right? Because Faramir is different. It's the moment that Tolkien has discovered that. Um, Frodo does not say more. Something holds him back. Wisdom? Memory of Boromir? Fear of the power and treachery of what he carried in spite of liking Faramir? They speak of other things. Reasons of decline of Gondor. Rohan. Alter Boromir's words saying he did not go there. I love these moments where he's like, oops, got to retcon that, right? I forgot, to, you know, Boromir said earlier on that he didn't go to, to Rohan. Yeah, now I want to make him go to Rohan. So I got to, you know, note to self, go back and change that. Gondor gets like Rohan, loving war as a game. So Boromir. Sam says little. Delighted that Gollum seems forgotten. Faramir falls silent. Sam speaks of elvish power. Boats, ropes, cloaks. Suddenly aware that Gollum is padding behind, but when they halt, he shears off. Faramir, in accord with law, makes them be blindfolded as they reach secret stronghold. They talk. Faramir warns him, warns against Gollum. Frodo reveals that he has to go to Mordor, speaks of Minas Ithil. Moonrise. Faramir bids farewell in mourning. 
Frodo promises to come back to Minas Tirith and surrender to him if he returns. The new Faramir? The new Faramir would totally let Frodo go. Right? Um, That is now the clear resolution. We don't get the wild rescue by Gollum, however that was going to be managed. Um, Instead, we have this Faramir, clearly. This Faramir would let him go. Right? A Faramir who would resist the lure of the ring would choose to let Frodo go. Um, Notice the next thing, and I'll let you guys uh, go after this. It's starting to get late here. Um, We didn't get quite to the end of my passages today, but that's okay. Uh, Being behind is what we do. Um, uh, Yeah, Jennifer, good. Faramir already knows everything, so we don't get the oops moment for Sam. Right? Sam doesn't have to betray anything, because Faramir already knows it. Um, but, um, anyway, uh, what was I, what was I going to say? Got distracted there. Uh, lost my train of thought. Totally. Warning against Gollum. Was that what I was just about to talk about? Sorry. Usually I don't lose my train of thought quite so completely as that, but it's completely gone. Um, okay, no, I remember now. The new Faramir, right? So we've peaceably resolved the situation. So we had, remember, like as the the whole story of the Gondorians and the Haradrim from the very first time they appeared was like dangerous incident, right? Near escape. And then increased danger and increased danger and increased danger until it looked almost hopeless. We're going to have to bring Gollum in for a, uh, uh, you know, for a Wild West escape there. Um, and now, when we dis- when he's discovered suddenly that Faramir's character is not like that, all of a sudden it's like, whoosh, the danger just vanishes, right? And what becomes the core of the story? Now the core of the story is, n- this is no longer a hairbreadth escape story. This is no longer a... Uh, uh, a a the ring is in peril. How are they going to escape the peril? Um, uh, story anymore, right? What does it become? Dialogue, right? Uh, Faramir now keeps talking. It's become a lore moment, um, and Faramir begins to. Now we're talking about what Gondor is like, right? We have the memory of the greater Gondor that is now diminishing. Um, Why? Because Faramir is now greater, right? Having discovered that Faramir is is different than Boromir, and in this sense more than Boromir, we have this through Faramir, the discovery of the greatness of Gondor itself. Remember, Gondor is powerful, but it's it's not all that, right? Uh, it was the city that was built by Elendil and the heirs of Elendil, but remember, they kind of kicked the heirs of Elendil out. I mean, it was the modern-day Gondor was always going to be just a just a pale shadow, right? Um, and tragic in the sense of they did something stupid and they're suffering for it now, but um, but not tragic in that sort of classical Tolkienian way, that sense of just, like, inevitable loss, over time, right? As time goes on and they, they you know, the, um, the, 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 the glory and the wisdom of the older days is passing. 
that becomes the message of, of, of Faramir's conversation and the conversation, right? The conversation of Faramir expands and expands and the vision, having discovered the new Faramir through the new Faramir, Tolkien discovers Gondor, right? And we get Gondor really for the first time. Um, this sense of Gondor, Gondor begins to come into focus as a really interesting culture and as this um, uh, this really big part of the of the world of Middle Earth, right? Um, through Faramir and through this conversation here. Um, all right, we'll, we'll come back and look at uh, some of those as uh, as Faramir's conversation grows and grows and grows. We'll come back to some of this stuff. So uh, we got through, my, we achieved my goal. My goal is to make sure we got through the transformation of Faramir, right? Uh, when uh, when the true Faramir finally springs his ambush and, uh, and jumps out of the bushes and Tolkien sees him for the first time, right? Um, that has finally happened. And... Um, yeah, oh, James, and you're absolutely right. Through contrast, Rohan as well, right? That the nature of the of the the uh, of the culture of Rohan uh, comes into focus uh, here as well. It's, it's a, this conversation is obviously this is a huge world building moment for Tolkien, right? Um, so we will um, uh, we will look at some of that uh, world building stuff uh, at the beginning of next time, and then we'll. And then we'll move on. Well, we should, again, be okay next week. I look forward to uh, to being back with you guys next week. Um, we're starting to... I'll be starting to come up on another deadline there soon, but at least I won't be having a meeting that day, so it should be fine. Uh, anyway, thanks, everybody, for joining me. Uh, again, see you guys next week. And uh, don't forget, tomorrow night, 9.30, uh, I want to share with you guys my big news and tell you our story and uh, all the stuff that's going on. So, uh, So don't forget about that. Thanks, everybody, and I will talk to you guys later on. Bye now.